0: I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray that prayer we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. I survived one last night of torture last night with my poor fillies. Torture for me, but uh, I have to... Confess up front, my poor, dear wife has put up with an awful lot this week as well, because the revival of my Phillies obsession, while (laughs) short-lived, created tension in my home. Uh, The only thing, as it turns out, worse than the Phillies losing is the Phillies winning and then losing when the games have become far too important. And... uh, Georgia confided in me Friday morning after multiple days of this that she's tired of baseball because I'm not easy to live with when the Phillies are in the World Series. Now, thankfully, that seldom happens, right? Um, And as of last night, we've been now granted a long reprieve from having to deal with it, I'm assuming. Uh, But in the midst of her chiding me for my emotional enthusiasms and instabilities, the resulting... uh, emotional highs, but also the anger and despair that comes with being a Phillies fan, I had to admire her impeccable sense of irony, because she said to me, Matt, you need to keep your eye on the ball. (laughs) Leave it to my wife to use a baseball metaphor in the midst of this conversation, right? Now, if she could have given that same chat to some of the Phillies the other night, who knows what would have happened? Now, I don't know how many of you played Little League Baseball. I I spent many years playing right field and right bench uh, interchangeably. (laughs) Um, But, you know, everybody, even if you haven't played baseball, you've all heard this uh, advice that you have to keep your eye on the ball. You have to watch the ball as it's coming in. You can't take your eye off and spin out, right? And, And even when you're catching, you watch the ball into your glove. Now, I didn't follow this advice very well because I was afraid of the ball, and this was part of the problem. I wasn't really built to play baseball But what Georgia meant by this was, of course, the the metaphorical sense uh, uh, that there are bigger things in life than baseball, which should be obvious, but she reminded me in that specific instance that, that my household and the peace of my household, but also the work of the church are my primary callings in life. Now, I confess that sometimes my hobbies and interests can get the better of me. They can distract me, right? And, and sometimes I, I let them become almost an allegory for everything that's going wrong in my real life, right? So, for instance, uh, when my team is winning, I tend to believe and sense that sort of like all things are possible, right? Even for this church, like, we could do anything, right? Anything could happen if the Phillies give the world a seat, right? But then they're losing, and my outlook tends to kind of dim a good bit, right? Uh, In other words, I I am very much affected by the noise in my life. It doesn't really matter what it is. It could be baseball, it could be politics, home improvement projects. doesn't really matter. When the noise around me gets elevated, I tend to get distracted and I take my eye off the ball. I think we all do this on some level, right? And in those moments, I, I need to remind myself and sometimes be reminded that I need to tune that noise out and focus on the tasks at hand and keep my eye on the ball. And... It's nice that this sports you know, analogy, uh, it's actually it's a biblical idea too. Uh, Paul repeatedly uses the imagery of an athlete to describe living the Christian life. He talks about this idea of running the race, and, and it shows up multiple times throughout the New Testament. And he goes into some detail with the analogy in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slaves so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize." I like this because it sure sounds like Paul knew something about sports. You know, He speaks as a man with passion. It's kind of nice that maybe he could relate to me. But there's a reason I borrowed a phrase from that passage as a heading, sort of, for the new mission and vision statement for our church, that part where Paul says, I do not run aimlessly. You need to know where you're headed and what you're trying to do. In baseball terms, you would say, I do not swing wildly, right? In other words, I keep my eye on the ball or on the prize, and you have to, to do that well. You have to tune out the fans, you have to tune out your stress and emotions, you have to tune out the scoreboard, and just do your job. And, you know, today we're, we're finishing up our study in the Great Commission, And we've sort of reached the meat of it now at this point. We started off a couple weeks ago by looking at this this dream team that Jesus has assembled that wasn't really much of a dream, right? And then last week we looked at the man who's giving the command, right? The team captain. And today we're going to look at the command itself. This is the mission that Jesus has given to his church. What exactly is he telling us to do? How do we run this race? How do you keep your eye on the ball as the church? hard to play a sport if you don't know the goal. So Jesus gives us a goal, a mission statement, if you will. And like any good mission statement, it's short and sweet. It's a good bit shorter than the one that we've concocted as your session. That's on the, uh, <laughs> the mission page, right? This entire mission takes up a verse and a half. And you could further simplify it. You could summarize it even more simply as a two-word slogan. Make Disciples. Very simple, right? That's the hinge point. There's one imperative verb in this entire sentence in the Greek. In, in English, it says make disciples, but in the original Greek, it's actually a single word. It's a verb that only shows up a handful of times in the New Testament. Mostly Matthew, Matthew uses it. And, uh, and it's only as an imperative right here. Uh, but you could basically translate it as to, to disciplify, you know, discipleize. Uh, It's kind of a manufactured word that summarizes our calling. I suspect that Jesus kind of made it up. He's allowed to. If Shakespeare could, Jesus can. (laughs) So that's the primary goal, disciple-making. Just like scoring runs in baseball, our goal is to make disciples. And we've been talking about discipleship as a theme since we were back in Acts, right? But it all starts with this command. But how do we do this? How can we fulfill this great commission? I'm sure these 11 guys asked themselves the same question. It's a pretty monumental task. But as we look more closely at the text, we're going to see that Jesus adds several details explaining the how to's of discipleship, what he expects, how it works. He's going to teach us how to keep our eye on the ball while we're making disciples. And I think it's going to help us as a church to better understand our purpose. We'll look at the text a little more closely because before we even get into the main command, I don't want to skip the first two words that he throws our way. He says, "Go therefore," right? The text in 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 Greek, the the, the therefore comes afterwards, just like it does in the English. But I, I want to focus on that first because it's a sound principle in all biblical interpretation. Maybe you've heard this said, but if there's a therefore, you want to know what the therefore is. Therefore, right? And what it does is it obviously ties the command to the previous verse. And the previous verse is what we talked about last week, where Jesus announced that he has all the authority, that he holds all the cards, right? And this tells us something critical right away before we even get to the command. We are learning that the mission finds its justification in the authority of Jesus himself. There is no great commission without a great commissioner. He has the authority to give this command, but more of, oh, moreover, and maybe more importantly, he is also authorized to make it happen. Our mission has been authorized. Now, that's a good thing to remember, because I think that when it comes to making disciples, we can have a tendency to think that we're waiting on Jesus to, to give us a special invitation and specific permission to reach out to certain people, create an opening, right? And... You know, there, there are times, you know, when, when there are limitations to how well we can reach people. And, you know, sometimes missionaries won't go to a certain country during certain times, you know, because of legal restrictions. And they'll refer to this as a closed country, right? And, and that may take time and prayer before they're able to get there. They might have to employ different strategies and this kind of thing. But I think lots of times, we as individuals in the church... Uh, We don't even talk to our friends and neighbors about Jesus because we're like waiting for this opening and for like a special invitation to talk to them or initiate things. Like we need a hall pass from Jesus to get started or something. Now, my homeschooled kids don't remember hall passes. When I was in public school as a kid, you couldn't even go to the bathroom without a hall pass with you. And it could be a slip of paper. Most of my teachers had concocted some sort of knick-knack, like a stick of wood with a chain on it or something goofy. I don't know, whatever. And that was your ticket to freedom for about five minutes. <laughs> Jesus is essentially telling us that we already have the hall pass. And for that matter, he's the hall monitor. There's not really any problem here. We're not supposed to be timid or worry about whether we have the right to do this. We have carte blanche, a blank check, unlimited access to do this work. We go where we go, and we do what we do as the church on the king's authority, which carries serious weight. But the other thing that he says here that I don't want to skip over is he says, go, go therefore, right? Now this may sound elementary and kind of stupid, but the mission means doing something. Going places, meaning that making disciples is not a passive activity. We don't make disciples by sitting still and waiting for it to happen. It requires intention to disciple people. Now, I'm a Calvinist. I know that salvation belongs to the Lord and that every disciple of Christ only became a disciple because of an inner work of the Holy Spirit. We don't do that, right? And I realize... Uh, that not only justification, but sanctification are also God's work. But it is also true that Jesus chooses to work through human agency. Very few or maybe no Christians in history ever became disciples and certainly didn't stay disciples independently on their own. Just them and God. Occasionally you may hear of somebody picking up a tract and reading it, or, or, or having a dream, or opening a Bible, and they have this dramatic come-to-Jesus moment, right? That, that can happen sometimes. But even then, continued discipleship can't be done on its own. Nothing about the Christian life is meant to be a solo act. The church has involvement here. If disciples are going to be made, someone needs to go and make them, is my <coughs> point. So we have an actual mission that requires us to Go. So even before we get to the actual imperative verb here, right, the command has authority and it requires action. We see that already. But then we get to the central point that Jesus is making here, the imperative itself, make disciples. That's the church's calling. Now, discipleship is a tricky thing. Disciple-making is a tricky thing. We've been saying for months that in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, uh, discipleship's not an easy thing, right? Telling people about... Jesus as Savior is one thing. But talking about Jesus' lordship over their lives is actually quite different, right? Telling people about Jesus, the the great guy who who loves them and died for them and their sins, uh, that's kind of the easy part. Selling them on discipleship is actually quite difficult. And apparently that's by design because there are multiple warnings in the Gospels that being a disciple is just hard, And there are passages where translators will often label the section, right, the cost of discipleship or something like it. And and honestly, you read these passages and you think, like it sounds like Jesus is trying to scare people off. He doesn't promise sunshine and lollipops for discipleship. It doesn't work that way. In Matthew 8, we're told a scribe came to him and says, you know, teacher, I'll, I'll go with you. Anywhere you go, I'm I'm there. And Jesus says to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And another disciple came to him and says, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Luke 14 is an iconic one. It says, great crowds accompanied him. He turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. He wraps up the section saying, And any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. In Matthew 16, Jesus tells his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Well, with those ringing endorsements... uh, Jesus tells us that discipleship entails the possibilities, at least, of homelessness, the loss of material goods, the loss of relationships, the loss of family, suffering, and eventually death. How exactly are we supposed to sell people on the idea of discipleship? If you can imagine being a salesman, a door-to-door salesman for discipleship and giving this little running list here of what Jesus says. Yeah, it'll be miserable. Did you want to sign up now or did you want to have a day to think about it and I'll come back? I mean, like, what do you how do you do this? But I've been reflecting on Jesus' word choice here because he, he's giving the church a job description, right? This is this is how we're going to do the job of being the church. And it's interesting to me what he doesn't say and how he doesn't word it. For instance, he doesn't say to go out and save people, to go out and save souls. Now, we know that we can't do that anyway. We don't do that internal work. But he also doesn't say, go make the world a better place. Pass better laws. Redeem the culture. He doesn't even say, go love people. Those are all fine things, but it's not what he says here. He says, go make disciples. Churches can make and create specific mission statements. That's what we did. But in the big picture, the church has one job and one mission. And we need to keep our eye on the ball. Make disciples. Everything else is secondary. And of course... Churches end up doing many things, right? We don't limit ourselves all the time, and some churches have more means and can do more things, and, and they do a lot of things that are good things, but that are secondary things. And we can all get distracted by those good and sensible but secondary things. It can be social programs. We, we could be feeding the homeless. It, it could be after-school programs. It could be social issues, it has not escaped my notice that this is election week. It hasn't escaped anybody's notice that it's turned on a TV or a radio at all, right? They don't let you forget. We were figuring out, it seems like Republicans like advertising in the fifth inning for some reason in baseball games, and the Democrats pick up in the seventh. I'm not really sure what that's about. But it's easy to get immersed in doing good things, Right? But we need to keep our eye on the ball. We, as the church, are not here to fix everything in the world. That is not why we exist. That is not our commission. That is not our charter. However, nor are we to huddle down and shut the world out because that would leave us completely useless and ineffective. Our job requires us to go out and make disciples, and our concern is to see that the kingdom is growing. And I've said it before, but the kingdom by definition is something that grows, it multiplies and expands. Jesus likens it to leaven, he compares it to trees and crops. It's always growing, and that's the primary mission objective. All right, and maybe you're saying, maybe the disciples at this point were saying, okay, we got to go make disciples. What does that mean? What does that look like? And Jesus says, I'm glad you asked. There are two primary facets to making disciples, according to Jesus. Baptizing and teaching. So what does he say here? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them. To observe all that I have commanded you. So, the role of the church, the way to make disciples is by baptizing and teaching. Jesus is giving the church what the Book of Church Order calls declarative powers. The church has no power to save in and of itself, uh, but it can baptize, and in baptism, the church is declaring you to be a disciple. And it has authority to teach and declare God's word. And that's the formula, baptize and teach. And the ordering is intentional. Baptism comes first because discipleship starts with becoming a disciple. People need to hear the gospel, they need to believe it, and then baptism is the first act of obedience when you come to faith. Now, I hope I've been clear that the water of baptism is not what saves you, but the symbolism matters. Because the sign of baptism points to something very real, and it's connected mysteriously to it. It's connected to this idea of your membership in the body of Christ. And this is why Peter, in his first epistle, actually says that baptism saves you. That's how he words it. Now, we would say he's ultimately referring to this internal spiritual reality, but the two things, the external and the internal, are intrinsically linked. The Westminster Confession puts it this way, that there is a spiritual relation or sacramental union between the sign and the thing signified. And I think we, probably most evangelicals more broadly, can probably stand to have a higher view of baptism when we think of it this way, uh, because it's important enough for Jesus to mention it right here in the Great Commission. It's a non-negotiable part of disciple-making. You can't claim to be a serious disciple if you refuse to take this first step. Now, I want to go ahead and add this caveat that uh, he doesn't specify the method or mode, whether you should dunk or sprinkle or pour. Much ink has been spilled over these debates. And maybe this could get me in trouble with some of my fellow Presbyterians, but I don't think Jesus is all that worried about those details, and it's certainly not the main focus here. The main detail Jesus is concerned with is the words used, the formula, specifically the name. Baptism must be done using these words, these names, except that you'll notice that he lists three persons, and yet the word name is singular. One name, three persons, the Trinitarian formula. Why does Christian baptism require this? It requires it because our God, the creator of the universe, is by nature one and three. He's triune. This is not just something that was made up by the councils back in the day. And all three are functional in salvation. That The Father made us. He gave us his law. We broke his law. He sent his son for us. The son lived and died and was raised for us so he could reconcile us to the Father. The Holy Spirit got sent by both of them to regenerate us and help us and to dwell within us. Salvation is always and completely, in every facet, Trinitarian. There is no church. There is no gospel. There is no hope. There is no mission unless it's Trinitarian. This is not a negotiable. Ours is a Trinitarian faith. Don't let the JWs tell you otherwise. So baptism is very important. But along with that, Jesus says, comes this command to teach. Baptism is just the start of things, right? Kind of like a wedding is the start of a marriage, right? Things didn't end on wedding day, did they, Jason, Ivy? Right? That was the beginning. And the Christian faith is a walk, not just a washing, right? And to walk with Christ in his kingdom requires teaching. If we want to walk with him, we need to know him, and we know him through his word, and we learn his word through teaching. And it's interesting how Jesus words this part as well, because he doesn't say to teach people to obey his commands. He doesn't limit it to that. It's certainly implied. But the word he uses is to observe, to observe what he commands. And the Greek word is the same word that is other places used for maintaining, or keeping watch over, or guarding, or even to keep someone in custody. It's that kind of language. It has a sort of protective sense to it. And so implied in that one word is not only obedience, but a proper preservation of right doctrine. Jesus not only wants his church to do what he says, he commands us to preserve what he says and to teach it clearly and not mess with it or change it. Now we said that the Sermon on the Mount was like a handbook on discipleship, and it is, but Jesus is going well beyond the Sermon on the Mount here because we're obligated to observe all his commands, and that means all the scriptures and not just the red letters. So that's discipleship in a nutshell. The church needs to baptize and teach. That's how disciples get made, and that's how you keep your eye on the ball. That's what we're supposed to focus on. And I want you to notice something about that, and I've kind of mentioned it in passing already, but everything about disciple-making requires the church. You can't be a disciple without other disciples. You can't baptize yourself. That's called taking a bath. Don't get me wrong, I recommend bathing. But it's not that impressive. I mean, even Gwen takes her own showers now. I'm very proud of her, but I'm not as proud of you if that's all you're accomplishing, you know I mean it's... But genuine baptism requires the church. You don't wash yourself. You get baptized into the body of Christ, within the body of Christ, by the body of Christ, and into the name of the triune God. But it is not a solo act. And likewise, teaching requires the church. You're not supposed to be self-taught in the kingdom. Now, being self-taught, I mean, that's, that's, that's cool and everything. Grace has been sitting on Duolingo now for months, um, you know, and she's got her sisters kind of hooked onto it, and she's working on getting me into it. But, you know, she can actually speak some Russian phrases now, because, you know, that's normal. <laughs> now, that's not truly self-taught, is it, right? She's using a program. Uh, but even then, she will likely never be truly fluent unless she does what? What are you going to need to do to actually get fluent in Russian? speak it. You're going to have to go and be surrounded by other Russian people. You'd have to go to St. Petersburg and, you know, be inundated with the stuff, right? She needs the full immersion experience. You'd have to go to Russia or else Northeast Philly and spend some time with real Russians to teach her to learn and understand the language. Point is is that teaching requires teachers. That's why the Ethiopian eunuch needed Philip to help him interpret the book of Isaiah. He could read it by himself, but he had no context. Even if you study the Bible on your own, which is a good thing to do, you're not really doing it on your own, are you? You're depending on the church. Because other believers have preserved that word of God for you. Believers probably printed that word for you. Somebody in church history translated it out of the original languages for you. If you use a study Bible or a commentary, you can thank the church for that. And even with that, you will still need to go hear the word preached and taught if you want to grow. And not just on Sunday mornings. The point is, everything about the Great Commission assumes the existence and necessity of the church it's a necessary institution, because no Christian was made to be a lone wolf. In Christ, you are a part of a body, and you need to act like it. But even with all that said, Phil brought a question to my attention yesterday. And, and it's a question regarding applicability, right? It's possible to read the Great Commission and wonder what it has to do with you, Uh, Because it seems like a lot of what I've been saying is aimed at the institutional church, right? That the church does all the baptisms, and we do most of the formal teaching and preaching, right? Uh, So what are you all supposed to do? Be spectators? No. What's the point of you keeping your eye on the ball? Well, Georgia observed that it's kind of similar in some respects to the fact that Fans at a baseball game are also keeping their eye on the ball as much as the hitter. It's just for slightly different reasons and from different angles, right? There's more to it than just the pastors and the elders. This is an imperative for you. And and I, I think that there can be a danger in taking this great commission and sort of like being like, well, we'll leave that to the specialists. And if I'm considered a specialist, we're really in trouble. But the thing is, I can't do this without you all. And not only do I mean that in the sense that I need to have you here so that I have someone to actually preach to and disciple. uh, That's also true. I don't want to preach to an empty room. I can't disciple without disciples, right? But uh, more to the point, you all absolutely play a vital role in baptism and teaching in the church, not just as recipients. Jesus commands his church to baptize, but if baptism is the first step of discipleship, that implies a need for evangelism first, right? Doesn't it? I mean, we can't just baptize baptize people on the street. I can't just throw water on them as they're walking by or anything. I mean, I haven't tried that, but... So the mission of the church has to face us outward, and it means we need to go convert people by spreading this good news of the gospel. It's not enough to just grow the church by having more kids. I mean, that's fine, important as that is. But even when you do that, eventually the parents bring their children for baptism, right? I can't go snatch them. Like, I need you guys to bring them. But Jesus is assuming in this in this command that evangelism is going to take place, and that job is not restricted to the elders. It can't be. And teaching also can't be left entirely to the elders. You know, I get you for about 30 minutes a week here. Sometimes longer. I'm sorry, Phil. But even 35 minutes is not enough. It's not enough to help you face all of the struggles you're going to deal with this week. You need more teaching and more discipleship than I can provide from here. And I don't have enough hours in the week to disciple all of you in all of the ways that you could use it. But that's why the Holy Spirit gave you everybody else in the room and outside of this room. Every parent in this room is responsible for teaching their children about Jesus. Every older woman is in a position to disciple younger women, and and they're commanded to uh, in Paul's letter to Titus. Every older man is supposed to disciple young men. Older kids can disciple younger kids. You can all disciple your peers to an extent. Discipleship is a team sport. None of us could do this independently. Discipleship is a job for all of us. It means the evangelizing and the baptizing, but also the teaching and the training of each other. And we need to keep our eye on the ball, all of us. And I think we're certainly going to need all hands on deck if we want to do what Jesus says, because the command is not limited, obviously, to like Lehigh Valley Press or Allentown or the Lehigh Valley region, right? What does Jesus say? Jesus said to make disciples of what? All nations. I mean, there's about 200 nations right now recognizing the world. We're talking about, Jesus said this to 11 disciples. I mean, there were fewer countries maybe back then. I'm not sure. That's a tall order. Jesus likes to lean into the superlatives here. All nations. I mean, you're talking about 11 guys right now who are scared to even go out of their doors in Judea. But something, again, has changed since the resurrection. We saw last week that Jesus the man has received all authority on earth. But I'm I'm a little bit indebted. I heard a sermon where Votie Bacham was talking about this, and, and he was so on point about it. Revelation 20 gives us a hint of how Jesus intends to use that authority. In John's vision of the millennium, which we are living in presently, he says that the devil has essentially been arrested, that he's been bound and confined. But what's really interesting there in that chapter is, to me, why. Revelation 20, verse 3, says that he was thrown into this pit and that he's locked away, but then it says, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. And what that means beloved, is that we are living in the missionary age, the age of evangelism, because Jesus already defeated the enemy at Calvary, which means that there's no such thing as a closed country anymore. Not really. There's not a closed individual or a person that you can't approach with the gospel. There are no true barriers that can hold the gospel back. We can disciple the nations, starting here in Allentown, because Satan is bound and can no longer freely deceive the nations. That doesn't mean you're not going to face resistance. Not everybody will accept the gospel. The enemy is still active in some sense, but he is not free to do as he pleases. And he can't ultimately stop the advance of the gospel. But we need to know in this process as well that making disciples requires baptism and teaching. In other words, that it's not an either-or proposition. Doing one without the other is not making true disciples. What I mean by that is this, that baptism alone, a public conversion, but without discipleship, that's just sacerdotalism. That is, that is thinking that the water is going to save you. That's what it's doing. Think of it like getting married and then going back to your parents' house. It's a meaningless gesture. And worse than that, it's a violation of the third commandment because you're claiming the name of Christ without any follow-up. You need discipleship if you're going to live the Christian life. And none of that implies perfectionism, but conversion will mean transformation. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Do new creations act like old creations? Sometimes, maybe they will, but there should be a battle within. If the Spirit is in you, he will make war against your flesh. And the goal of discipleship is not to perfect you or to earn your salvation, but to act out of your new identity. But on the other hand, the opposite is also true, that teaching gospel obedience without baptism and conversion is just moralism. It's trying to create Christian behavior without regeneration, trying to get people to act like Christians without making them Christians, treating the symptom instead of the disease. And that's why it's a fool's errand to think that we can create a Christian culture without first creating Christians. You can't make disciples without conversion and baptism first. All disciples require baptism and the steady teaching, discipleship, and training of other Christians. Well beloved we have our marching orders and for the church to be the church we have to do this and we must grow numerically and spiritually if the church does not grow it's not the church we must be fruitful and multiply baptizing and discipling the nations which are conveniently as we are Americans they're at our doorstep. And as we do this, we will actually fulfill what Matthew's gospel has envisioned from the very beginning. Because Matthew starts his gospel by telling us that this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus. This is a book about Jesus' family. And we know that Jesus had no earthly, biological children. But when we make disciples, Jesus' family tree grows. That's what we're doing. That's what we're called to do. And the job isn't easy. And, beloved, that's why we need to keep our eyes on Jesus. As a final thought, you know, the best way to keep your eye on the ball is to focus less on the task and its insurmountability than on the guy who gave it. Jesus prefaced this command by drawing attention to himself in that verse we were looking at last week. He said, look at me. I have the authority, right? It's not a mistake that he closes in a similar way by, again, pointing everybody back to himself. And he does that with this beautiful promise Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Beloved, that promise is for us. You don't promise 11 men in their 30s that you'll be with them till the end of the age, right? The age hasn't ended, so this is clearly not limited to the guys that are standing on this hill with Jesus. It's not limited to the 11. This is a promise to the whole church from now until Jesus physically returns in glory. And what could be better than having Jesus with us? Making disciples isn't easy, but we can't really screw it up if he's with us. He doesn't take the training wheels off and just let us go. That's not how this works. That last sentence is there to remind us that we can't lose. The mission is not only possible, it's guaranteed to succeed because we're not in charge of it. So keep your eyes on Jesus. He is building his church, and we get to be a part of it. Isn't that cool? Let's pray. Gracious God, our Father, we are so thankful for your word. We're thankful for this gospel of Matthew, for the the endless treasures that it are. Lord, Lord, we have barely scratched the surface of it, Just a handful of of chapters here. But we've learned so much. Lord, we pray that you would help us to internalize this command from our team captain. That we, we would take this commission, this charge, seriously. Lord, that it would be our passion to discipleize the nation's starting with the people at our doorstep, the people in our lives. Give us that passion, Lord. Light a fire in us. Grow your church. Grow your kingdom. May your name be great, Lord. May Jesus' family tree extend to the four corners, even here in the Lehigh Valley. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Grass withers. Flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please stand and join me in singing the doxology.